Testing, it's not, there it is, okay. You make your way to Exodus chapter 10. I'm going to be there for a few moments uh, this evening. I hear the ladies had a great ladies retreat this week, and so there's been things that have been going on, and then uh, other events of this weekend, and um, I, I hear good things about it, and grateful that we have a congregation with doing so much like this. A men's retreat two or three weeks, weekends ago, and now a ladies retreat, and we're kind of, now it's the men's turn to do something, so y'all come up with something, and then we'll challenge them, and we'll just do this battle all the way through the year. That'll be lots of fun. Lots of fun. You might have a hardened heart if you know what the Word of God says, but that's not enough. You might have a hard heart if you only feel sorry that you were caught, not that you want to change. And a third one from our text tonight is you might have a hardened heart if the concerns of people close to you has no bearing on what you actually do. This is an odd one, but it's one of the weird things that come up in Exodus chapter 10. Each one of the plagues has something a little bit different. This time in the plague of locusts, God tells them something. It's plague number eight. Something a little different, a new feature. Moses and Aaron, they go and they announce this eighth plague is coming. And if Pharaoh refuses to let the people of Israel go, this time locusts are going to come in and devour everything, anything that's left from the previous seven plagues. If there's anything still left standing, the, the locusts are going to come and get it. Moses is specific. He says these, these little creatures are going to get in your house. They're going to they're gonna get all over the land. They're going to turn the land black. I mean, it's going to be a terrible thing. Something that even your great-grandfathers never saw. I don't know if you've ever seen a lot of locusts before, but they can do a lot of damage to crops, which means your income is ruined for a year. That should get his attention, but regardless of whether it did or not, if you look at verse 7, something unique happens. Now, for the first time, the people of Egypt rise up and say, Pharaoh, you've got to do something. Now, up to this time, they view Pharaoh as like the ultimate ruler, maybe even a, a little bit of divinity wrapped up in him, right? A divine figure. We don't question our leader. We just salute and we serve. We don't protest. We don't make suggestions. We don't go out on CNN and critique him at all. We just say yes, sir, and go on, but not this time. They can be silent no longer. The land has been decimated by all these horrible things that the God of Israel has brought on them to get their attention, to judge them, and to, and to let them get them, motivate them to let the people of Israel go. And they're saying enough already. And so you see in verse 7, Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? How long are you going to let this go on? Let these people go that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Pharaoh wants to hang in there, but the people shout, Uncle, it's time to let this go. And he actually does listen for a minute. He invites Moses back, says, you know what, I'll just let the men go, and that's not, that's not satisfactory to God, and so here come the locusts. The people make this heartfelt, earnest plea Please give in because it's hurting us. But that is not enough for Pharaoh to change his mind. They had to pay the consequences for his hard-heartedness. They expressed it to him, but that's not enough to move him. 
even though he had the power to do it. He's going to stay with it no matter how much it hurts the people closest to him. And this is the third sign of a hardened heart. When you make decisions and do things only thinking about how they'll benefit you, never thinking about how it'll cost somebody else, you know that your heart is hardening. And there's some obvious ways this happens. The man who's married, and, but he decides, you know what, I'm not exactly happy in this marriage, and this no, young new blonde over here is making me happy, making me feel young, and I'm, I'm playing around with her on the side, but all of a sudden he decides, you know what, I want to make a life change. I want to pursue her with full-time vigor, right? And I'm going to leave my spouse. Now, the wife finds out about this and pleads with him, don't ruin the family, don't hurt our kids like this, don't hurt your reputation, and don't destroy us like this. The preacher steps in, or the elders, and steps in, don't hurt your reputation like this, don't jeopardize your soul like this, don't hurt the church like this. None of it matters. It doesn't matter what it does to the church, what it does to the kids, what it does to the wife, what it does to anybody else. He's going to go after this new fling. His heart has become hardened. Remember one New Year's in my family when I asked a relative, what's your New Year's resolution? And she said to me, I've decided I'm going to do what I want to do and go where I want to go and I don't, want, I don't care what anybody else says, life's too short. And she did too. She left her husband. She went to live out with, on her own, never gave much thought to him anymore. How independent, how strong, how bold, how hard-hearted. The couple that wants that image of a three-car garage and cars to fill it and the big house and all this stuff and they both have to work two jobs and all of a sudden it jeopardizes their time with their family when you only have 10 or 15 years with those kids and you're willing to fill that up with work in order to pay off all these things that you want. No time for the kids, no time for church, no money left over to support spiritual causes, none of that. When you do what you want to do and you do not th figure and do not estimate what your actions mean to someone else, it's a hardened heart. And you can disregard some of these examples and say, those are radical, they wouldn't happen to me. But I want you to realize how much one another means to your spiritual life. How much of your spiritual exercise of maturity involves one another? It involves other people that you have to think about. Is it possible the way God describes it, that the way you do your job for your employer and whether you're doing your best for him or not is also a reflection on whether you're doing your best for God or not? Is there certain things that if you don't do what you agree to do for your employer, it is a sin in the sight of God? You do care what he thinks about you. You do care what she thinks about you, the employer who's over you. And there's all sorts of one another passages that talk about you are responsible and you do care about the impact of your behavior on other people. All these one another passages, think about them. You need other people to fully express and grow your spiritual walk with God. You have no choice about this. You can't live like a monk out in a desert with nobody around. That may develop your spiritual life somehow, your knowledge and maybe your discipline, but you need other people to practice your faith to its fullest. Think about this in different ways. 
You need the least of these. The judgment scene of Matthew 25. What did you do with the least of these? That means the least of these that you see in your life, they're part of your judgment. What did you do for them? If you do nothing, you're sinning. Here's a few of them. A spirit-filled believer will speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and they will encourage one another or spur one another on toward love and good works. I need you to help me become as fully spiritualized as God wants me to be. You can't do that at home. I know people who tell me this all the time. I can just worship at home, and I can sing at home. I, I grant you that. But you cannot teach one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs when you're sitting alone at home. You can't spur one another on toward love and good works, which is part of your exercise of your spiritual life. You can't do that at home alone. You can't do that. And therefore, part of your spiritual development never happens. Full spiritual healing for your life requires you to pray for one another and confess your sins one to another. A lot of the victory that God wants us to experience in our Christian lives comes when we share our plights with one another and pray for one another. How in the world can you be a fully spiritual person and not pray for someone else? If you are so consumed with self-gratifying things that you cannot know what one another's burdens are so that you carry one another's burdens... It's a sign of hard-heartedness. Appreciate you being faithful to your spouse and observing the Lord's Supper every Sunday, but just as significant as those things are is bearing one another's burdens. But if you never know what they are and you never act upon them, you're stunting your spiritual growth. And whatever reason you give for not doing those things is a sign of a hardened heart. You're to be kind to one another, bear with one another, forgive one another. That means we interact. We inter interact with each other consistently if you refuse to interact with people so that you have to bear with people listen we live in a church you live in a church community with people who rub you the wrong way all the time and you're supposed to God places annoying people in church have you noticed this he places them there on purpose to develop your spiritual life because if you're around people just like you all the time how are you different than the pagans so he puts you in a church with Paul Wallace. That's what he did. That's what he was doing. He knows what he's doing. He puts you in church with these people. And the thing is, you've got to interact with each other and learn the different personalities. You know there's different personalities. I can speak to some of you one way, and another person I can't speak this way. And I'm learning. I'm learning spiritually how to, to be a mature person as I interact with other people. If you avoid all that, and you avoid that because people annoy you, you are showing signs of a hardened heart. There are many instructions in the New Testament that require the one another's. You need one another, and you can't get to heaven without one another, and you cannot develop your spiritual life the way God wants you to. And there are times when the only reason you do things is for one another. There might be a Sunday night where you don't need the sermon and you don't even need the singing. You, you feel like you are, you're right with God, and you're like, I don't really Well, here's the thing. One another needs you. Is it okay if sometimes the only reason I come is because I don't want to disappoint you? Is that okay? 
Is it okay for you to know that we offer spiritual activities like ladies' retreats and, and you're not always going to feel pumped about going on those? You're not always going to feel like, I need this, like I'm craving this, or I absolutely have to have this to sustain my spiritual walk. Most of the people who go to those are the ones who do 80% of the work anyway. It's just another thing. But they need one another. It's a one another deal. So once in a while... A fellowship activity, and I've noticed this in the church all my life, that there are some that just for some reason think this is extracurricular optional. And I guess in a sense it is. But it's an option you need to choose to bless one another. And whatever reason you give for never coming to those, whatever reason you give is a symptom of a hardened heart. It's just about whether I need it or want it or not. No, it's not. It's, it's about whether you're serving one another. I'm going to give an opinion that will be controversial to some, perhaps. I've always wondered how slavery became so very supported by people, especially Christian people in the churches of the South. The idea that you can own a human being, and you have a right to own a human being and force them to work for you, makes my skin crawl. How did that ever happen? To own a human being sounds wrong to the very core of the reasoning. But I got to reading some perspectives from Alexander Campbell one time, and he was just describing the financial impact of getting rid of slavery. I thought, what, what do you mean by that? Think of it. There's no tractors yet. There's no combines, no equipment of that sort. So the only way to make this big farm grow, go and get any money out of farming at all back then was to have the manpower to get the work done. But to pay enough people to do that manpower would be expensive. So instead of hiring people, I'll buy people. I'll buy people who will pay themselves off in a short amount of time, and then after that it becomes free labor. A great investment for farmers. And then along come these movements that say we need to get rid of slavery. The north is built on industry. They don't care about slave labor. They don't need slave labor up north. But the south, the agricultural south, needs them to work farming. The cost of replacing slaves and going to hired workers would cut into your profit. The bottom line could easily be this. To free human beings from slavery would cost me money. So it's in my best interest to come up with some argument to maintain slavery. That has to be some of the motivation for people to justify this awful institution of slavery back then. It's an ugly argument. I, I don't know if you dropped me back a few years ago in the 1850s if I would be stoned to death right now for saying something like this. Never mind that a human being was viewed as property. Never mind a person was forced to do terrible labor nobody else would. If a slave owner viewed that slave as a person, it would be hard to live with their conscience. But if I could somehow convince myself that that person was something less, it would be okay for me to abuse that person. So I talked myself into viewing a slave as less than a one another. After all, it was important for me making a good living. So I strip him of his humanity to increase my profit. And this is exactly what Pharaoh was thinking. The cries of his own people. Please change your mind and let them go because it's destroying our lives. It's destroying our land. It's destroying life in Egypt. 
But Pharaoh kept thinking, but what would be the cost of replacing this free labor? Think of the dollar signs in the long run. He was thinking of the replacement cost. That was way too high. Whatever it costs to keep this free labor here, I'm going to pay it. But the problem was, Pharaoh's not the one who has to pay it. It's his people. His people are paying it. If anybody still ate, it would be Pharaoh. If anybody still sustained all that he owned, it would be Pharaoh. What would it matter to him if his people hurt a little? Things look different when I can have what I want and other people are stuck paying for the consequences. When I can walk away with that hot blonde, right, and the only people having to pay for it are my kids and my wife back home, that's a hardened heart. You know what your family needs? Your family needs the spiritual training that comes from Bible class. Your family needs the worship of God. Your family needs service opportunities to exercise spiritual muscle that we don't often get to exercise. Your family needs you, men, to provide spiritual leadership at home. And whatever it is you decide to do instead of those things becomes symptoms of a hardened heart because those are your primary objectives. When you are going to do what you want to do, your hobbies, your fishing, your hunting, to the expense of someone else because you refuse to do what your obligations are, it's a hardened heart. Exactly what Pharaoh was exercising. So whatever you decide, whenever you decide, you can disregard one of these commitments that you're obligated to do in order to benefit only yourself. Be really careful. Those benefits put someone else in a hard spot. It's a sign of a hardened heart. And if you continue doing that, you will eventually crust your heart over. What can be done... For an old heart like that, how can you soften it up? There's a story. Jesus in the garden weighing his options. The cross is just ahead a few hours. The cross was not his greatest challenge. It's the garden that's his greatest challenge. He walked through the cross without wavering because he won the battle in the garden before the cross ever came. This is where the battle came. And I can imagine the difficulty. Does he want to suffer the physical pain and endure the the torture and die? Does he want to do that? And the answer is what? No, he does not. Does he want to go through the humiliation and the shame and the abuse and all these things of the masses, in front of the masses? Does he want to do that? No way. Is his death necessary to overcome some sin he committed? Is it due, righteous justice due because of a mistake he made? No, he was sinless. His death is something totally optional. It's not necessary for him. He did not have to die for any reason of his own. He had a choice. That had to be the battle in the garden. I don't really need this for me. The only reason he needed to do it was for you. And sometimes it's hard to make yourself do something when the only beneficiary is somebody else. That's called love and that's called submission. When it doesn't benefit you at all. 
And when you refuse to do something like that, it's a lack of submission. Now, I've overstated the case because that's not really true. Jesus did have to do it for his own benefit. If he was going to please the Father, he had to die. The only reason he had to do it was because God asked him to. This is what's called in Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You submit to one another not because you want to, not because it benefits you, not because you look good. You submit to one another and do what other people need from you. You do this not because of their formation, not because of your formation, not because it looks good for you. You submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's part of your worship to God. And so what answers this question? What keeps us from being totally selfish in our walk before God even? A sense of submission a desire out of reverence for Christ to submit to one another. And there's a way you do this. It's called in Ephesians 5, filling yourself with the Spirit of God. When you fill yourself with the Spirit of God, four things happen, and one of them is you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If we can fill ourselves with the Spirit of God, one of the things He's going to do is move us to fulfill our obligations, even when those obligations benefit us none at all. If I understand Ephesians 5 correctly, when it comes to marriage, it means this. If there's one person in this relationship that doesn't get what they want, that has to do what benefits other people at sacrifice to themselves, it costs them and it blesses others, who is that person? The husband. And whatever reason we give for not doing that is a sign of a hardened heart. Pharaoh demonstrated it for us. When the concerns and the needs of other people around us and the obligations we have to them no longer motivate us to do what we need to do, it's a sign that our hearts have grown hard. And we need to tap into the need for submission. And the only motivation strong enough to sustain a walk of submission is reverence for Christ. It matters why you do something. I may not do something sometimes because it's the right thing. I may not do something sometimes because I don't want to do it. But if somebody could say to me, and if I could teach myself this, will you do it for God? Will you do it if he asked you? If you have an employer asking you to do something, you signed on to this job and give him so many hours of work, and it's part of your obligation, you need to do it. You need to be submissive. You need to be submissive to your employer. Too many people are being disrespectful on the job, thinking like they have all these rights, there's certain things I'm not going to do. If they don't ask you to do anything immoral, if, you're, if your job asks you to do it, do it out of... If he's a jerk, do it anyway. Do it out of reverence for Christ. It's a sign of a hardened heart when the concerns and the needs of people closest to us is no longer a registry for us. We're going to do what we're going to do. It doesn't matter what it does to anybody else. 
That's not the Christian way. The Christian way is I submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Those relationships that we have, we need to know what our obligations are. And when we figure out what they are, we need to carry them out for God's sake above all else. Let's be Christians who say, God, what are my obligations to my employer? What are my obligations to my spouse? What are my obligations to my elders? What are my obligations to the law of the land? What are they? And some of them I won't like, but I'm going to fulfill them because I'm doing this out of reverence for Christ. That's the only way I know to soften a heart like that. If this evening you stand in need of anything spiritually before this group of people and you know that you need to submit in some way to the truth of God and for some reason you haven't been, tonight we provide this, another opportunity to respond, to repent, and to get your life right. Whatever it is that may soften your heart, repentance is a big power and so is submission. And if you're in need of either one of these, to express them before this group, this is a safe place to do it as we stand and as we sing.